after you know yelling into um what, what probably felt like a, an abyss for a while do you finally feel vindicated we launched this fund in 2018 uh, a small cap manager here in Sydney uh, came up to me and said, you might be the, the shortest lived fund manager in the history of fund management. I reminded him of that comment last year when he was on site at Ross's honeymoon. I fucking told you, boys. We're at the beginning of a multi-year sort of shift here, I think. G'day, money monitors. We're getting back into the yellow cake. Mm. These Twitter's at just to service Twitter or X. People call it X, yeah? No, I don't think so. Nah, anyway. Mate, we've got uh, one of the head honchos of the investment industry, you'd say, for uranium, uh, Guy Keller. Nuclear, mate. Nuclear. Nu- nuclear. So yep. Guy Keller runs the Nuclear Opportunities Fund for Tribeca. No, that's not the full <laughs> name because I couldn't remember it. <laughs> no, that was pretty it, good, mate. That was pretty good. And, and you'll see I'll fuck it up later as well. The anyway, translation is just uranium fund. It's, but it, well, it's a nuclear fund, yeah. <laughs> oh, so it sounds mm. like he's uh, – it's it's uranium stocks, but you know other nuclear technologies and stuff as well. Yeah, so, but the money miners want to know about the U stocks. They just want man. to know what's going up. <laughs> yeah. So no, it was a, a bloody good yarn. I reckon we just rip straight into it, boys. Every every you want to know anything uranium stocks, ASX and around global. This is the bloody spot. Market That's dynamics it. That works. It's wicked. Before we rip in, Maddie, we've got to thank the uh, the team at Anytime Exploration Services. Anytime now, tra- travel. No, we when we talked about anytime, anywhere, any altitude, I'm not going to go to the level of saying they'll work at any radiation level <laughs> because that that is not what they'd put their workers through. That it's is safe, probably mate. I would say uranium and radiation levels is the only thing that mm. Anytime have a certain yeah. parameter to work within, gotcha. but. I don't taint the good name of, of a uranium mine. Outside of radiation levels, they will pretty much do anything. Oh, uh, a place like Boss Energy. There's no uranium in and around the, the PVC pipes floating around. Exactly. They can give Seamus a call. He will sort them out. We well, said any, as... any altitude, will they do any depth? Because, like, next gen's, what, 500 metres below depth. Will they, will they go that deep? Oh. It is, it is radioactive. Oh, <laughs> no, but as long as it's within that <laughs> threshold, he's... Any time's fine. Will he go to that's the Athabasca Basin? One rule at any time. Anywhere, right. mate. Anywhere. Anywhere. That's, mate, there's nothing Namibia. you can say. <laughs> anywhere. Anywhere, so all that, any risk. All that said, if you need people, you need core cutting, core storage, the whole works, just give Seamus Murphy Sampling, a call. Uh, they've got vehicles, they got, mate, yep. they're getting in everything. And as we said, rumours are they're getting into planes. That's they've got to buy a jet when they get the Philo mining contract to fly yeah. everyone over. It's all intertwining. Yeah, the Gulf Stream. Anytime exploration. Thanks, Seamus and Victoria Murphy. Um, if anyone didn't get any of that shit talk, they do everything exploration. That's so it. Hit them up. All right, let's rip yeah. into Guy Keller from Tribeca. Good times. Here we go. Right, boys, here we go. Guy Keller, who runs, as we mentioned before, the Tribeca. Oh, fuck, I've forgotten it already. You, you, <laughs> may, as well, you may as well say it, Guy. <laughs> G'day, I'm Guy Keller. I'm the portfolio manager of the Tribeca Investment Partners Nuclear Energy Opportunities Fund. Oh, you can it's see lovely why to I, be here today. You can see why I couldn't remember it. There you go. <laughs> Guy, it's awesome to have you on, on Money of Mine. The, uh, the listeners have been itching for an episode on uranium, and obviously you, you focus a bit broader than that, nuclear and you know this, this whole sort of renaissance. So I'm keen to rip into it and get started with you sort of painting a bit of a picture for how things are looking at your at your end at the moment. You've been in the fund for quite a few years now, and it seems like a lot's coming together this past little while. 
Yeah, I mean, look, it's 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 like anything in commodities. There's cycles, and and the uranium cycle has been through more than ten years of a pretty deep bear market. Um, you know, as a, and and that came about as a result of uh, you know the anti nuclear sentiment after the Fukushima tsunami. So you know, we'd been in a very healthy cycle back then. The rug got pulled, and um, you know. What attracted us originally, I mean, I work as well for Tribeca's Global Natural Resource Business, and, uh, and we were looking at, I was looking at everything, uh, and uh, uranium came up as something to look at, and I said, you know, I'd rather model soybean seasonality next, and uranium's dead in the water. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, looked at it again, and then the first thought that popped to my mind is, oh, no, everything I've been doing is wrong because this does not make, doesn't make any sense. Um, you know, coming from a background of, physical commodity trade and commodity derivative trading, um, it became pretty obvious that a lot of the things that people were talking about um, weren't an issue, you know, inventory and all that sort of stuff. And, and in fact, I thought that was actually a positive because it was the, the industry drawing down on it. And, you know, it's a really easy thing to model on the demand side, um, quite unusually, um, because it looks through cycles. So you could see the demand out 10 years and you could see it, yes, naturally declining. But we started this six years ago started this journey with a primary mine supply and deficit uh, to, you know, to, to, that was that was on, on the existing uh, fleet of reactors where there was the ability for, uh, for a few more to switch back on, notably Japan, which, which is slowly happening. Um, and so it was a pretty robust sort of fundamental reason to have a look at the sector back then. And what, what were some of the, I guess, the major catalysts that you said you've come from that big uranium bear market? What are some of the biggest catalysts that have been why we're uh, sitting at, I think it's, what, 69 bucks today, 72 the other week? Um, and you, yeah. The top five. Yeah, look, yeah, look the realisation, I think, um, from our global natural resources platform with that sort of move towards decarbonisation uh, and the commodities required for decarbonisation and when uh, and the battery electric vehicle revolution sort of picked up a bit of steam uh, and, uh, you know, the obvious point was made that, you know, it's uh, it's great to own a Tesla, but if you're plugging into coal-fired generation, it's not actually solving a decarbonisation problem, just, you know, moving those emissions somewhere else. So, you know, that obviously then became how do you decarbonise electricity? And uh, the obvious question or the obvious answer to that was already, already there. There's 32 nations in the world using nuclear electricity and they and a lot of them have been doing it for more than 60 years um, and it's you know zero carbon or low carbon base load electricity so you know I think that realization started people eyeballing the sector but what really then sort of kicked it was ironically covid and uh, the supply disruptions we were seeing of moving physical commodities but also uh, that difference of you know developed nations uh, trying to to push through COVID and and the developing nations having uh, many more problems with labour and and what have you, and you know it was a very concentrated supply of more than half the uranium being mined coming out of Kazakhstan. Um, I think that was then what what put the spot price movement through through twenty and then thirty dollars. That was what originally kicked it off, and then again more recently with with uh, Russia invading Ukraine, energy security has become front and centre of government policy. So you've had governments now uh, forcing, um, or not forcing, but <laughs> actively encouraging utilities to, to, to keep their nuclear reactors on um, and, and the ones that they were planning on turning off, it's like, no, no, we want you to keep them on and, and extend that. So, you know, that 
supply deficit you had with a natural sort of retirement of some reactors became even bigger because a lot of those reactors are now staying on. Um, you know, they've been the biggest drivers. Guy, as you, as you pointed out at the beginning, this is not a uranium stock fund. This is a nuclear fund. I'd be keen to hear from you the, the, the distinction and why you set it up as a nuclear fund. Nuclear opportunity. Yeah, so... Opportunities. 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 Exactly right. Every, that's every, everything's an opportunity. <laughs> <as> a <voice. laughs> is, it to, is it to buy enrichment, you know, uh, companies as well and, and, and the sort? Sorry, is it? Well, yeah, I mean, you know, unlike, um, you know, coal and gas going into electricity where the coal that comes out of the mine is pretty much the coal that's shoveled into the furnace, um, you know, uh, uranium goes through a fuel cycle. Uh, from mine mouth to reactor core, 18 to 20, 24 months, and, and there's a whole bunch of things. Um, and so we we looked at that. So the, the end product that the utilities end up putting in their reactors is uh, very different from the, the yellow cake coming out of, uh, out of the handful of mines that are producing it. Um, what, we, what we sort of worked out there was that a lot of that is that fuel cycle is semi-government or quasi-government or government-owned. So it wasn't really investable. Um, there was the opportunity to maybe look at at the utilities, but you know they're sort of again. Well, now in the United States, there's one that's a bit more uranium or nuclear focused. But a lot of them, you know, nuclear was one part of what they did. So they'd have coal and gas and hydro and solar and wind and things. Um, but then, more importantly, as we started looking, this is six years ago, as to what's the technology that's going to displace this thesis. Uh, is there something that's going to come and, and, and replace fission? And the obvious one was fusion. But what we found in that, but that's still a ways away, and, um, but what we found in that investigation was this whole sort of small modular reactor and micro reactor push. Um, we thought, you know what, eventually there's going to be investable opportunity there. Um, as this thesis matures, um, you know, that's something that we could potentially be involved in. And we, we've got a little exposure. We call it nuclear innovation. Uh, just as a little placeholder there in the fund, uh, this is two positions in that as as a reminder to investors that that that's where we can and will end up focusing uh, some of the portfolio. Guy, I think we're going to go deep into some of your pertinent views on on the market, the dynamics, and and especially the stocks since we're a bloody mining podcast. But before we go there, I just I really want to know after you know yelling into um what what probably felt like a an abyss for a while, do you finally feel vindicated? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've got to admit, when we we launched this fund in 2018, a, a small cap manager here in Sydney uh, came up to me and said, you might be the, the shortest lived fund manager in the history of fund management. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I, uh, I reminded him of that comment last year when he was on site at Boss's Honeymoon uh, checking out uh, what was going on down there in South Australia. I assume you I said, a few times you would have said, uh, I fucking told you, boys. <laughs> <laughs> um but yeah, I mean, it is. It's it's uh, again. It's you know, it's whether a beginning of a multi-year sort of shift here. I think, and uh, and so you know, yes, I'm I'm glad that it's it's working, and I'm glad that it's getting eyeballs. But I think it's got a lot further to go. And and you know, whilst every sort of uh, broker has probably got a PA position in uranium stock somewhere, there, there's a hell of a lot of institutional money globally that's just not invested in this sector yet. Uh, so there's plenty more eyeballs that we need to, uh, to convince that this is a, should be a mainstream investment thesis. How do you sort of, like you keep referring to this big thesis and it's quite different to a lot of other fund managers who were sort of tie onto a thesis or 
a thesis in around a specific stock. But there's the sort of big one here that the whole fund is kind of built on. For the life of the fund kind of point of view, do you get to a point, say in five years, in 10 years, where you're like, yes, the thesis was right. You know, in 2020, 2021, we saw the first leg up and then another one. And then you're like, I was right. I can shut up shop, you know, and that's how it goes. Or how do you sort of envision it playing out? Um, well, I mean, again, that's sort of that the nuclear technology angle there as well, you know, as we move forward as a, into a more mature sector. Uh, I mean, you've got to remember as well, last cycle, there was over 500 list opportunities in the uranium space, right? Uh, I think in 2018, when we first started looking, or 2017, when we first started looking, there's about 20, and now there's maybe sort of 50 or 60. Maybe yeah, the nuclear that... opportunities include buying put options on the uh, on the stocks at the top of the market, JD. <laughs> well, it, it, it is long shorts. <laughs> um, but, you know, so there's still a big runway. Um, you know, I've got a database of last cycle projects that, that are good projects that, uh, that you know, would have been much closer to development had we not had Fukushima. So there's that angle to still play out. Um, you start getting, when you get more um, uh, projects into development and there's, you know, free cash flow, you get a, a more mature investment opportunity there. Uh, M&A cycle then continues as it did last cycle. Uh, where um, the big boys realise that it's easier to buy something that's already operating than build another one themselves. Um, and then you do get that nuclear innovation um, as, uh, as you know, Bill Gates wants to, uh, to, to bring liquidity to TerraPower and all those sorts of things. Um, and that's going to be very North American focused. That seems to be where that technology push is. Um, so, yeah, it, it, it gets less volatile as the sector uh, increases and, and the focus shifts slightly. Um, but you know, I still think there's a fair bit of runway before uh, before I'm wondering whether to uh, to shut the doors or change the title of the fund. So, at a, at a portfolio level, you sort of touched on the the big boys potentially buying other assets. You've got a, a number of different ways to play it. You've got assets on care and maintenance. You've got the large players, the exploration plays. You touched on the the smaller innovations. How do you kind of think about piecing them all together to build a portfolio? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so this year um, has very much been a focus on um, at at one end of the spectrum on the uranium minus has been those in production. I mean, Cameco has obviously had a phenomenal run and whilst I'm not paid to own Cameco per se, um, you know, it has been a good good place to, uh, to, to park some capital. But also those that are funded into production, um, you know, because... What we're seeing, or what we've seen this year, there's a bunch of developers who were sort of sitting there talking to 2016 PEAs or, you know, 2020 studies, decided in their wisdom to go and update their numbers. And they're throwing out much bigger, uh, you know, cost or CapEx requirements than they might have been talking to. Um, that shouldn't be a surprise because we've seen it in uh, in gold and copper and lithium and you name it. It's been, you know, since since COVID, that's, that's, that's half of the course. But I think the difference is it's there's so much less analyst coverage of the uranium sector that it, it does catch a few people by surprise, So, especially the retail sector. So, you know, I have sort of stayed away from those people updating numbers because um, on that basis of, of, as I said, there's a bit of sticker shock. If, if there is a sticker shock and I still like the project, then there's some good dips to buy. But the other end of the spectrum has been, as I said, that pre-IPO, new, pro, you know, old cycle projects coming back in and the new shells, uh, getting vended out of things. Uh, you know, there's been some really good opportunity there. I mean, I've passed in the last 
six months I've passed on more than I've participated in uh, because the, the real diamonds haven't shaken loose yet. Um, but again, you know, that's that understanding of, of this, you know, if somebody's coming up with brand new, and in fact, I had a meeting the other day, somebody staked some land in Athabasca, it's never been drilled and said, give me some money. I said, no way, <laughs> you're about three waves too early, um, you know, because there's so many people that have got historical drilling somewhere that know exactly where to, to drill again. So so there's a big focus on, on, on that exploration. So, and again, it doesn't, I don't want to see a, a process flow sheet from them. I don't want to see an estimate of costing. Uh, I want to see them prove to me that, that that they're finding uranium where they say they're going to, and we get we get a, a, a stock appreciation on that. You touched on Cameco earlier as well. We we saw the big transaction with with Brookfield and, and Westinghouse. I'm I'm keen to hear from someone who's very deep in the nuclear world what you made of the transaction at the time, and if it's sort of changed at all since, and the sort of strategy of Cameco more broadly. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's that was a. It is a transformative deal for Cameco, uh, and there was a lot of focus at the time that it takes them away from being a pure play uranium miner. The reality was, uh, but even before the, the Westinghouse deal, they weren't a pure play because they've got a fuel services business and a whole bunch of other businesses. It it properly vertically integrates them. What what we've seen um, is that they almost become a proxy for the U.S. government. I mean, there's some, been some big deals been announced. Ukraine and uh, and some other countries there, um, you know. It, so it, it probably it puts them in the position where, and and then with that, you know, potential uh, deal with GLE and Silex and the laser enrichment, you know, they really then get that whole stack. So they become a nuclear player, not um, not just a uranium play. Um, I think more importantly, I think part of the, what the market missed because of the focus on the Cameco angle of that deal. You know, Brookfield Renewable Partners, <laughs> it's the biggest, you know, energy transition investor in the world with 125 gigawatts of projects under development, has basically given that whole sector a big green tick on nuclear and nuclear services to say this fits in our investment strategy, where in the past perhaps people had thought Brookfield Renewable is just a wind and solar play. And so I think that's really, really caused a whole part of that investment market to to go back to the basics and go, wow, what do we what do we now need to uh, what do we need to skill? And when you talk to the investor relations um, at Cameco, they say their biggest inbound has been ESG energy transition investors saying we need to understand this deal. Uh, and now um, their second biggest inbound has been energy uh, investors saying, you know, like this looks like it's 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 you know the oil and gas investors saying we we want to understand whether we should be invested here, and you know you're going to see some much more information come out in the next few months when that deal gets ratified. I think the the last UK was the last country to sign off on on the deal, um, and so we'll see a lot more economics around that. And it's it's I mean it's a truly annuity based long term you know business now. So, so you've touched on a few times now institutional money and the real big dollars from these big players coming in being a, a key step in the in the next leg up. But what what is the sort of catalyst you think that sort of brings them in? Is it just the spot price continuing to, to run higher? Is it perhaps more governments mandating nuclear reactors being built and such? Or is there something else in mind? I think it actually comes down to market cap. Um, you know, you've got the, the whole market cap of the whole uranium sector. And remember... This is a global sector that produces 
responsible for producing 10% of the world's electricity, um, you know, carries a big burden of the, uh, of the, the zero carbon part of that uh, electricity. You know, the whole global market cap, including the free throw to Kazataprom, it fits inside Fortescue or Woodside. So the market cap is tiny for, for what, what they're doing. Um, last cycle, so you know they're about forty or fifty billion dollars. Last cycle, the, the the market cap was closer to about two hundred billion dollars, and so I think that you know certainly with global investors, they can invest in much more liquid things like Chemica. Uh, was down here, you know, you've got Paladin and Boss, and then a bit of runway between what's next on a market cap. You, you're already seeing in Australia. You've got Boss Paladin, Deep Yellow, and Silex now in the small odds, um, you know, and they're, they're around two and a half percent of that that index. So, you know, that June last year was zero. Um, you've now got a whole new sector appear on small cappers' radars, and whether they like it or not, they need to make a decision as to what they do about it. So, you know, you're running a billion dollars of small cap money. You've got to buy twenty-two to twenty-five odd million bucks of stock just to get index weight on those four names so that you're not getting a, a performance lag. Um, and then the decision is to, to go overweight. So you're seeing a lot more of that come into those names. Uh, and, and that will only continue, I think, as, as the market cap increases. Guy, on your, your point on index inclusion there, I look at some of the, the consolidation in the uranium space, you know, in recent history, kind of kicked off with, you know, Vimy, Deep Yellow. Um, we saw Lotus's merger with ACAP. ISO Energy and Consolidated Uranium, that that was, um, yeah, TSX-listed stocks there. But but they all kind of feel along the lines of a theme of these developers. Um, they merge together and they get a bigger market cap. The cynic in me sort of wonders if the rationale behind a lot of these mergers, because a lot of them have projects that aren't even in the same jurisdiction as each other, if the real rationale is just to have a bigger market cap so you get included in the index and there's more um, programmatic buying um, as uh, the uranium bull market goes on. Is that an accurate depiction of the rationale driving the consolidation, or is there something else here? Um, I'm not sure that that the, uh, that the 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 CEOs and boards of those companies would would uh, would would say that 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 that's accurate. I mean, probably <laughs> they would you know believe 100 percent that what they're what they're buying is a, is accretive to their share price and their shareholders. Um, but you know, it's certainly yeah. I mean, it's. It would have to be a, a shrewd board would would think about that because at the end of the day, uh, you know, the bigger market cap you are, the more interest you have, um, you know, the more ability you have to uh, to tap the equity capital markets or or, or debt markets. Um, you know, when it does come time to develop a project, the capex requirement versus your your market cap looks less onerous uh, and doesn't scare as many people off. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm sure they've probably considered. Um, what a combined market cap looks like in those decisions. There's another sort of layer to the, the uranium market, which is really fascinating. That's the the sort of spot market and then these physical players jumping in. So again, keen to hear from someone who's got the experience in this industry. How do you sort of view the spot market? It's so different to the likes of gold or copper that we talk about frequently. How do you look at that? Yeah, I mean, so so the, the uranium purchasing um, globally, um, is is basically like what iron ore used to be, uh, you know, fifteen years ago, where you know basically you priced iron ore off the BHP one year contract price to Japan, 
plus or minus your impurities and, and, and maybe some freight and things like that. Um, in other words, you know, everything is happening. All the real business in the uranium market is happening in, in a contracting, long-term contracts where utilities are, are engaging in five to 10 to 15-year contracts, uh, normally priced, priced confidential and term confidential. The spot market is really realistically the, you know, the sort of last resort market. Um, and yes, companies like BHP have been selling into the spot market as well as uh, some other other producers in Eastern Europe. Um, but, you know, it's it's a small, it's a tiny market. Um, and people look at the price discovery there and assume something's happened. You know, I've seen, seen the uranium market move two or three dollars without a trade, um, you know, or if it has been, it's a hundred thousand pounds. So it's a really small, um, you know, uh, maneuverable market. Um, and I think the Sprott Physical Uranium Trust has brought lots of eyeballs to that. Um, but, and, you know, I, I don't like talking about the spot price because as I said, everything happens on contracts. Um, but, I get it, right? It's it's the most observable instrument for for investors. It's the only thing they can actually see because otherwise they're believing uh, me or somebody else as to you know what Duke or Constellation's just done with you know a, a, a producer. Um, but yeah, so the reality is when it does move and it has, um, it does get the junior market on, on the uranium markets moving as well. Um, so it is important as to what's going on. And do you think as the, the nuclear market in general sort of grows, does does it become a more liquid market? Um, no, I don't think so. I think because the utilities are, you know, so, so keen to actually secure supply, um, if anything, it's the opposite. Those producers who are uh, traditionally maybe putting something into the spot market uh, and now getting approached by the utilities and saying, listen, we can trade a spot price with you, but give us a volume contract. So if you've got a, a million pounds you need to sell next quarter into the spot market, um, we'll take the million pounds and whatever spot price at the time that you want to transact uh, is the price that you can get. Um, and so, the, in fact, what that's doing is meaning there's less pounds in the spot market, which means when the Sprott Trust and some of these others start trying to get in and move it, it's going to be even more volatile to the upside. Guy, I'm pretty, I'm pretty curious to, I mean, you've got proximity to the market in a way that, you know, most don't, and everyone loves to speculate, especially on stuff that's flying. And um, you, you probably have some views on... Um, some misconceptions that the you know the punter who's new looking at uranium companies looking at you know the spot market like what are the, the most common misconceptions that you think people should just bloody you know wipe out of their brain as they go deeper into this space as in every uranium stock's going up that's, that's one of them isn't it <laughs> they, they are aren't they <laughs> yeah, every all of them in the Tribeca fund apparently <laughs> yeah the ones I've picked certainly <laughs> Um, yeah, look, the, I think the most common misconception is uh, is listening to equity analysts uh, who want to tell you that a that a stock's too rich, um, and you know that we're getting. I'm getting that a lot. You know, there's some obviously some ASX stocks that have moved extraordinarily well, and uh, you know because uh, these things aren't free cash flow generating or producing, we're talking like price to nav or EV to resource and things like that. Uh, and you know, I keep 
So well, mate, even the cash flow producing ones, they're putting on bloody EV EBITDA multiples now because they're trading way above NAV. So. <laughs> yeah, exactly right. And, and I sort of sit there and say, well, you know, you've got, you've, you've got a scarcity premium here um, where, where, and you're also assuming a price that is not adventurous. Uh, and I think one of the brokers increased their long-term price from seventy to seventy-five dollars. And I said, "Well, why didn't you go to eighty? Oh, we couldn't get that through." I said, well, "Why not? Oh, we don't think it's going to get there." I said, "Why?" <laughs> um, and you know, I'm, again, I'm not trying to sit here and say uh, this thing's going to three hundred dollars or anything like that. What I'm saying is, we've moved to a point where apparently there was going to be a wall of supply. Uh, you know, because our $60 medium-term incentive price was scaled up to 70 odd dollars because of cost inflation and what have you. But it's not just price. Price is not going to solve this problem alone of getting this supply to market. So, you know, we quite happily accept some lithium moves that are just eye-watering, uh, you know, stocks rallying four to 5,000% off their, off their bottoms and say, oh, well, that's lithium. But when we get this move in uranium, that misconception, it's done enough, it's expensive now. You know, I, I don't buy that. Um, you know, if you sat there and, and saw some of those lithium prices that where, where we topped out uh, and if anybody told you three years or five years earlier it was going to get there, you would have said they were crazy. Um, but it did and it got there and it stayed there for a long time. Do you think there's... Uh, like there seems to be quite a bit of waiting to that last peak, that sort of 2007 peak that just the price went up astronomically. And I always hear people who are bullish about uranium, they reference that and they're like, we're, we're going to get a repeat of that. Mm. Do, you, do you think there's, you know, a little too much of that referencing that or that that's actually not that good a guide perhaps? Um, well, I mean, it's an easy reference because that was a spot price move. And so if these financial vehicles really get ahead of steam up, there's no end to where that price could move to because, you know, when that spot Assuming it continues to issue stock on that at the market facility, it may, they may get to a point where they say, I know we're at a premium, but we can't issue because we're going to be holding too much cash. So they may be able to do that. But when you know, you've got them and you, you had a, a US listed company the other day raise some money, go and buy some pounds again. Like the reality is, the spot price can go wherever that financial demand leads it um, because it's not a real indicator. The, the real indicator is going to be where the, the contract market settles, uh, i.e. what sort of price do, do utilities have to wave out there to, to get certainty of pounds uh, in, you know, starting out three to five years' time. Um, that's going to be the real barometer of what the market's doing and then can it stay there and will it stay there? So, I mean, yeah, it's as I said, it's, it's an easy comparison to draw to to say, yeah, it's going to go to $140. As I said, you know, if you get enough financial vehicles, then it could go to 200, whatever. Um, but is there going to be real activity trading there? Probably not. I'm, I'm curious. I think the um, the demand side of the equation is something, you know, the typical punter kind of understands and everyone can feel the, the sense in, um, you know, perception changing and, and we, we, we can feel a bit of a nuclear um, renaissance upon us. But it's the supply part of the equation I think it'd be really useful to unpack. In your August letter, um, you included this quote. I'm just going to read it briefly. Last cycle, there was a long line of shovel-ready projects preparing to come to market that coincided with Kazakh supply growing exponentially, and the pace of new reactor builds had declined. This time around, the Kazatopram and Cameco are struggling to reach previous levels of production, and only some of the last cycle 
idled production is attempting to come back. Hold that, hold that thought for a moment, right? You're getting held to account for everything you've said in history, <laughs> God. Yeah, you can't get away Shouldn't with anything, right? <laughs> <laughs> so in addition to reading your commentary on supply there, um, I was on Twitter last night and uh, the, the koala posed this question, um, which I'm going to steal and, and put it to you. He says, time to antagonize uranium twi- Twitter. Olympic Dam goes from 6% to 12% of current supply approximately 12 million pounds. Kazatapram runs at 110% subsoil given spot $60 plus. Cameco debottlenecks MR and restarts Rabbit Lake. Lee decides to do some real work for his options and builds Arrow. How many pounds or percentage annual demand did the koala just bring into the supply stack before 2030? Which one of these doesn't happen? Supply forecast can be fickle, of course, but yeah, no trade versus a fundamental investment. So, I, I, I guess I'm trying to reconcile these two different views on supply, and but yeah, just want to ask you, like, you know, based on based on koalas, sort of indicative supply coming online. Granted, you know, some of that's like medium term. Um, you know, how does how do you how do you still have a a pretty buoyant outlook on supply amid amid that sort of um, case? Yeah, I mean, the the reality is so. Let's just look at the reactors being built at the moment, 61 reactors. Um, they're going to require 30-odd million pounds a year of uranium, um, and they're going to be connected in the next five to six years. Um, so when you look at that in perspective, you say NextGen's going to do, what, life of mine, 22 million pounds a year on average. So Arrow comes on. And it's not even mining enough uranium to to uh, uh, fulfil the requirements of the 61 being built. Um, Cameco get up to capacity on MacArthur River and Cigar Lake. Sure, again, um, from what they're try- trying to do now, that extra pounds is uh, is welcomed uh, and goes some way to closing the supply deficit of the existing fleet. Um, you know. BHP were in the news the other day saying with uranium prices up here, we might consider expanding Olympic Dam. And so, well, hang on a second, you had a gold price of $2,000 and a copper price of 4 bucks 20 a pound, and you weren't wanting to expand it then. And now you've got a byproduct that you've, you, you, you never want to talk about, and you include it as, a, uh, as an asterisk in your, uh, you know, as a byproduct credit, and suddenly you're expanding Olympic Dam on the back of that. Um, <laughs> Okay, boys. We'll, uh, we'll we'll see it when it comes. It's like, it's um, like coal. Again, they got rid of their they they weren't mining coal in their announcements either. Yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> so, um, you know, yes, uh, it would be um, um, the utilities would welcome that. But the Kazakhs are more interesting, um, and you know, when they put out their twenty twenty five guidance to come back to their subsoil lease agreements, and yes, they have the ability to to flex that another twenty percent over. Again, the point the market missed was almost all of that expansion for 2025 has already been accounted for by Russia and China. Uh, So it's not going to be available to the West. And this whole idea that China is just going to contract what they need for what they're building, again, uh, is a misconception. You know, China's going to 70 gigawatts of nuclear. They're planning to get to 150 and they'd like to get to 300. Um, you know, 300 gigawatts of, of nuclear in the next, uh, and that's by 2035, I think. Um, you know, that's 150 million pounds of uranium a year that they're going to need. <laughs> so if the Kazakhs are going to then go to plus 10 or plus 20, guess what? They're going to take it. 
The other problem that you have with the Kazakhs, and it's it's largely somewhat a short-term problem potentially, um, is that they've got some you know logistical issues in getting their uranium out of their country because most of that went through the port of St. Petersburg. Uh, and whilst Russia decided to want to continue to flex their muscles and and uh, and be bad boys uh, in Ukraine, you know, there's not much coming out there. And then their Trans-Caspian route is going through countries where there's a civil war going on, um, you know, and they've not been able to, to, to properly bed that down. So um, whereas going across to their bonded area on the China-Kazakh uh, border, uh, where they're building, that route is completely open. <laughs> so, you know, I sort of look at that again and say, you know, there might be some marginal pounds for the Jay-Z partners. So for Cameco and Inkai and Arano and all those guys, they'll get some marginal pounds out of, out of Kazakh expansion. But that's not going to be easy. You, you mentioned um, BHP's uh, attitude towards um, uranium there. I kind of, I look at the, the dynamics in the world at the moment, I can't help but have the thought like, where the hell are the majors? Um, you know, you even saw like Rio divest Rough Rider last year and they're kind of pretty absent in the conversation. Like, w- w- why is that? Do you think it changes? Do you think they're kind of, they've, they've laid their bed and they're, they're not going to enter the, the arena? Yeah, I mean, so, I mean, even last cycle, the majors were later in the cycle. Um, and and there were some eye-watering um, prices that were paid for projects. Um, and again, I think part of the problem here is that because we've just had more than a decade of just underinvestment and zero capital spent, there's not that many projects that a major could you know weigh into and and have a path to production in the next sort of five years, right? Um, I mean, you know, next gen's the one you just think like why hasn't yeah. that been gobbled up, right? Yeah, but again, you know, that's that's again proof that the majors are going to come in and and you know BHP will come in and do what they did with Oz Minerals. We can't build new copper, so let's buy existing copper. Um, so it doesn't actually solve any of the problems because you know Lee's project, Next Gen's project, will be able to come to market in the current corporate structure it's in because it's a phenomenal project. Um, you know, so that. Again, if a major weighs in on that, it doesn't change the supply and demand for, for utilities. Um, and I think that even in Canada where you're looking at all these earn-ins and joint ventures in the Athabasca and there's some uh, larger players who are sitting on the sidelines, and again, they're sitting there saying, let's just let you know flow through capital do all the hard work. And once it gets to a point where, where community, there's some studies done on it, there's a defined resource, maybe then we'll, and if we have to take it at a multiple, the hard work's been done. We're not, we're not, you know, stuffing around with uh, kicking rocks on the back of Land Rovers. Uh, are they, is it a function, because BHP and Rio haven't gone into lithium either, like is that, it, they just see these commodities, well, uranium, lithium's a lot younger, uranium's been around for ages, but is it just, too uncertain and too risky for them? Is that how they view it? Well, you know, they continue to, well, Rio, they talk about, um, you know, <laughs> they, they want to do it. Again, I think it's just yeah, but they, yeah, they, they haven't still have found, it. <laughs> something, found something they can do. And plus, you know, you got to remember they, uh, it was, there's been a few not very popular decisions that those majors have made in, in the previous cycle in other commodities that it's, they've spent the last few years trying to get themselves out of. Uh, you know, so they're going... 
say to your shareholders, by the way, we're lobbying in the lithium and uranium, and uh, you know it may come to market in 15 years. I can see why they're probably waiting for it to mature a little bit. I reckon it's time to get into some of the more stock specifics. We, we, put, the, we put the question out to the chat group <coughs> guy about uh, what questions to ask. One bloke said, I forget the exact words, Tell, ask him which stock uranium stock's going to go up the most. <laughs> so that's, that's, the, that's the punters in the group, mate. <laughs> Logical place to start on the ASX, mate, it would obviously be Paladin, PDN, mate. Yeah, so they've owned 75% of Langer Heinrich. Say so they are fully funded, in quotation marks, Production quarter one next year, so not too far away. And then they've got sort of a, a higher run rate for the, the first seven or so years, then it drops down a bit. I think it drops down to three and a half million pounds per annum. But, I mean, essentially, w- what do you think happens here? This is the one that ran from, you know, nothing up to, I can't remember, 10 bucks or something back in the day. So this is the one that a lot of people have their eyes on. And then gave it all away. <laughs> exactly. They gave it all away in the end. So how do you kind of see or how do you – Weigh up the the current valuation for Paladin. Um, yeah, I mean it's it's uh, it's going to be <coughs> producing a, a, a decent amount of pounds. Um, it's, uh, I mean, again, on a valuation basis, it comes down to the fact that they're going to be one of a handful. You know, one of something you can count on one hand. Companies producing pounds in the next, you know, six to twelve months. So, um, from a valuation perspective, I'd say, you know, again, analysts might say, oh, it's it's it's, it's topping out here, but it matures. It, it becomes as it becomes a, a producing company, it becomes more investable for a whole bunch of people. So, you know, whilst you know, does it repeat the last cycle and go to ten dollars? I mean, back then they were. Uh, you know, they had a second asset that they were progressing as well. Uh, you know, that was in the middle of, of of utility euphoria. They were completely exposed to the spot price. Uh, it was following that. Now, this time around, I think it'll be a a, a a a little bit more subdued journey because they are being a bit more prudent and and locking in some some contracting uh, to ensure that they don't get caught last time with that uh, um, uh, with their pants down and. Uh, you know, completely exposed. Um, but, you know, I guess the, the question will be after Q1 next year is like, what do they do next? And is their next move going to be accretive? Um, is it going to be, you know, looking to develop one of their other assets? Um, you know, again, some of those are in states here in Australia that have a policy banning uranium mining, not legislation. So, you know, wh- where do they go next, I think, is the, is the next leg on that on that. Um, uh, on the question for Paladin, but yeah, they'll, they'll perform well. Guy, if I'm interpreting you, well, what you're you kind of signalling correctly, it sort of sounds a bit like you you know, when we, we pose a question about valuation, it's you're kind of alluding to the fact that the share price is more a function of flows rather than analysts doing a DCF because, you know, there are new investors entering the space or they want some thematic exposure, therefore, and, and they might have a mandate. They, they can only buy companies in ASX 200. And so even yeah. though you could do a DCF on Paladin and, or Boss and you can't quite figure out like the current market cap and share price as a result of that DCF, the share price goes up because those flows are, are dictating price. Is that right? Yeah, and again, you know, I'm I'm going back to to last cycle. Um, the uh, financial analysis done by by equity analysts on on the sector was 
six months behind the whole way up, um, you know, and it was because all of the assumptions they were doing for today uh, got fulfilled immediately because the way the market was moving. And and so then suddenly, I mean, again, you, you look at, 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 at Paladin when they first started talking about it four years ago and there was a 20 cent price target on it. Now there's you know, $1.15 or $1.30 or whatever they are, or maybe higher. Um, and you, you put the spot price difference into those models and you say, just the spot price alone is not <laughs> has not justified how you get there. So, you know, they're always tweaking things. As you know, when you muck around with a model, you can basically get it to do whatever you want. Um, and so that's why I sort of sit there and say, um, you know, I'll throw in $85 and have a view on it. Um, and and I also need to be aware, to your point, what flow's coming in and uh, and how are they looking at it? Um, because, as I said, if, if you'd followed... And you know, analyst valuations last cycle, you were you were getting out way too early. Oh, my boss energy, BOE. They've just uh, just announced they've started their mining operations at the Honeymoon Well in South Australia. Mate, these in situ leaching projects, these uranium paleo channels. What do you what do you think about this as a these type of deposits in terms of? Probably more the perception um, when you're talking about governments and uranium mining banned policies in uh, certain states like WA, Queensland's pretty similar. Is this in situ leaching compared to your drill and blast and dust generation and everything? Is that going to be perceived a bit different, do you think? Well, yeah. I mean, you know, it's, it's it's not the mining you're used to, getting dirty and getting dark. Um, I'd prefer this one, actually. <laughs> I, don't, I, don't miss, I don't miss the bloody oil and the grease, I can tell you that, mate. <laughs> um, you know, look, the reality is because of Kazakhstan, more than half of the world's uranium is actually uh, extracted via uh, ISR, ISL, which is what you want to call it. Um, and, uh, you know, it it is a... The way that uranium sits in, you know, because it, it basically it travels, you know, there's uranium in salt water, right? There's a lot of uranium in the ocean, uh, and it's basically travelled through old watercourses and got stuck in geographic and geological faults. And so, when you have that sort of sandstony or porous sort of material, um, you know, it's it's a very efficient way to extract it and low cost and and a low environmental footprint. You know, you look at you look at that boss site when when they. Uh, uh, remediate their uh, you know well fields. It's you, you wouldn't know that there was a mining operation there because um, it's a bunch of PVC pipes over the surface of the ground with some PVC going into it. Um, and you know again because there's been such a long history of of that process, the the chemistry of returning water back to the water tables and what have you. So yeah, I mean it's it's it's. Um, an extraordinary method of of mining um, because and so as a result the cost is a lot lower uh, you're not having to plan uh, a decline in how you're going to mine off it you're not having to plan on strip and backfill for uh, for open pit uh, you know there's no crushing mills and all that sort of stuff in your plant uh, it's just basic chemistry and what what do you think about there I know Trav sort of touched on it where boss is sitting right now you know market cap of a few times multiple of the project MPV. Um, mm-hmm. What do you what do you think about of it as an investment at this stage? So, I mean, again, part of the the problem is a misunderstanding on on analysts as to how to value those projects. So, 
you know, when you look at a conventional mining project, whether it's underground or open pit, um, you know, they've got a, a large um, indicated or measured resource, right? Um, and and so and they've had to get that large resource so that you can plan how you're going to mine it. Um, and uh, because if you if you get it wrong, it's expensive. <laughs> so when when an analyst looks at that and they go, oh, "Great, I've got a two hundred million pound resource here. I'll give it two bucks a pound." Uh, so there's a four hundred million dollar valuation on that, plus plus all the other stuff. Within situ leach, you don't need to define your ore body to a measured and indicated status. Uh, when you look at the Kazakhs, for example, again they produce half the uranium in the world. They, they tell us that a well field. Uh, or a, a, an ISR field will continue to produce to 2035. And analysts go, great, no problems. We'll give it a value on that. You're going to do £4 million a year till 2035 on this field. Um, excellent, with this project. There's no resource on that. They haven't gone and infill drilled that. Um, they've gone and, you know, they've gone and defined where their oil body is. Maybe there's some inferred drilling at best and, and the market buys that. But when it comes to, Western ISR, they don't. The analysts don't want to do that. Um, and when you look at what Boss, Boss has done, I mean, I think Duncan took that from sixteen million pounds to seventy-six million pounds or whatever he's done. Um, plus, he's got the proven that there is ISR amenable ore bodies at his satellites. Like, does he need to, as as an investor in Boss, do I want him spending millions of dollars to go and you know prove a, a measured resource out there? No, because you don't need to do it for ISR. And I think that's where, uh, when you look at the potential of what what he can do on that project and property, um, based on 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 how previous ISR has happened uh, in other parts of the world, then you know the valuation is not as expensive as 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 market consensus would have you have you think. You know, you say they they don't they don't get a, a resource they don't need a resource because you know effectively they're just pumping pumping fluid in leaching it out and bringing it back up. Can they can they control how quick they leach it, how much they pump into it? You said, you know, companies say we're just going to produce this much amount every year and so on. Can they control that or is it fixed determined on the size? Have you got much insight on that? You can so you 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 uh, you can on the fringes you can. You can't sort of turn it off and on because you you're needing to uh, impregnate your your area with fluid and, and have it moving, right? So you can't, uh, you know, if you turn it back off, uh, then you've got to return it. I mean, you can potentially continue to pump things whilst it's on care and maintenance, but you still have to re-inject all your wells to get it restarted again. So it's not an easy, you know, oh, I'm going to mine today, no, I'm not, and, and not tomorrow. Um, but potentially, you know, you can, and again, it comes down to cost and recoveries. You don't want to be when you get your optimal flow rate uh, that's giving you optimal recoveries. Um, you know, at, at at the right price, you don't want to be necessarily mucking around with that unless you go into a different part of the of the uh, the well field where the geology is slightly different, and you have to change that to play around with it to get back to your optimal mix. P- pivoting over to um, still an ASX name, but but um, the project in the US. So Peninsula, a bit of a disappointing one for shareholders who were pretty invested in the restart of uh, Lance project there. That, like, I'm sure the shareholders are under the impression that um, production and sales were imminent. 
when it was revealed their offtake contract for the resin processing was terminated by UEC. And now uh, Peninsula's faced with a chunky funding gap. They need to accelerate the construction of the back half of their plant as a result of that because they, they can't um, you know have it treated by UEC. And there's some uncertainty relating to the delivery obligations of some near-term offtake that can no longer be met from their own production. And you know, it's weird, right? In a year where like uranium stocks have been all the flavour, they're actually down year to date. I, I, I guess my question for you is, is Peninsula back on the home straight from here? How do you weigh up their future risks, you know, amid the kind of performance that they've had now? Yeah, I mean, you know, oh, I, I, I got caught by that announcement as well, um, you know, and again, I guess uh, it comes down to don't assume everything's going to happen. <laughs> um, check, check and check again. Um, the, you know, those pounds are still going to come to the market. Um, and yes, there's a delay and yes, there's a, a, an, an additional cost in doing so. I mean, they were always going to add the back end of that plant. Um, and this has just accelerated those plans. Um, uh, the um, and so and and it was a quite a brutal you know share price response response to that. I think when it comes to and I saw Wayne and Rachel this week. I think when it comes to uh, the utilities, um, you know those utilities have been with Peninsula since you know 2015 sort of area. Um, uh, and from what I understand, they they're, uh, they will. Uh, I mean, they've got no choice, right? So, what are you going to do? You're going to, of course, you're going to try to ex- extend those. Um, and yeah, it does now become that that issue of of there is a funding gap, and so how do they do that? Um, you know, my sort of view on that one is they're obviously talking about a month, a bunch of different options to fund. Um, and uh, they will come to to a conclusion eventually, but given that you know there's sort of obviously debt or prepay or or, or utility conversations, and they don't take, uh, they're not they don't happen quickly, you know. They can sort of sit here and say we're just going to progress those conversations, do what we can with the money we've got, but largely preserve capital. Uh, if the equity market thinks we're come raised, so be it. Uh, but we're going to do this the right way. Um, and, you know, that's what I'd hope they would do. And, uh, you know, do I see uh, those pounds coming to market? Yeah, I do. I mean, there's there's nothing wrong with the project. Uh, I think I remember listening know. to the, the analyst call the day that announcement came out. And um, I actually remember the question you asked, which was, do you guys have defence advisors appointed? Because I, um, the cynic in you believes that, you know, Actions um, tend to happen for a reason. Do you, do you, do you still have a, a suspicion that UEC actually wanted to lob a, lob a bid and that's why they terminated the contract or have you kind of come around to a different line of thinking? Uh, I have a suspicion that maybe UEC weren't as ready with the processing plant as uh, as they thought they might be uh, and they hadn't necessarily got Christian Rants to to where they needed it to be and, and turning on that plant to just process uh, resin from Peninsula um, potentially might not have been seen uh, positively by shareholders uh, because, you know, there was a, a cost to do that. Um, I think when they originally sort of were looking at that, they thought they would be bringing their material through that plan at the same time as Peninsula's. Um, so, yeah, I, um, I mean, it wouldn't have surprised me if UEC had, had lobbed in a, 
a cheeky one down there. I don't think it would have been received too well by the Peninsula Management and Board. Um, but again, you know, there's no reason why uh, somebody else is not looking at it. Uh, yes, I know it's low pH, um, which in Wyoming, uh, most of that IS, ISR is, is an alkaline leach. Um, but, you know, to, to, to my perspective, it's been technically de-risked um, that the flow and the recoveries are going to work with that uh, with that solution on that ore body. And, you know, at the end of the day, it's a, there's a big resource area um, outside of, you know, what they're planning on, on procuring from in the short term. There's a couple uh, really big undeveloped players. So next gen we've we've touched on to to start with. Do you think they're getting any closer to turning that into a mine? Any sort of thoughts you've got there, or maybe contrarian thoughts? Um, yeah, I mean, two years ago I was a little bit more contrarian, um, but I mean, one thing that they have done extraordinarily well is that they have brought the First Nations and community along for the journey and uh, and really, really worked hard at that. And I think a lot of people underestimate the, the power and the impact of, of the First Nations in uh, in the Athabasca Basin and, and what how they can uh, influence whether your project comes on. So they've done a lot of work there. They've done a lot of work around the environmental. Um, and, you know, at the end of the day, a lot of that project will be debt financed and, and the payback's incredible. I mean, it's less than a year if they want it to be. I mean, it's just a phenomenal um, uh, all body. So, you know, are they closer? Yeah, but their timing is definitely going to be dictated as to the timing of the debt piece, and, and there'll be an equity component with that. So, you know, they don't they don't need to hurry. They, you know, they've got their environmental submissions in at the moment. Um, you know, so even if they wanted to do something, it would still be Q1 or Q2 next year waiting for those. Um, but yeah, I think they're definitely there's a lot there's they might look like they're not doing much at the surface, but I guarantee you the feet are madly flipping underneath the water. Over to Europe, Guy, and um, Berkeley's a bit of a maligned one on that ASX, big uh, yeah, project in Spain. Um, yeah, you, you ask around about this one and it's just like a permitting disaster is kind of the, wor- the word you kind of get told on the street about it. What, what what do you make of this one? I mean, it's still got a hefty market cap. Um, yeah, the size of the prize is, you know, in, I, I suppose intriguing, but um, like does this thing just never get permitted? It's a permitting lottery ticket, that one. Mm. You know, it is, it's <laughs> It's a low delta option that uh, uh, just, I mean, I mean, you've seen it a few times in the last sort of few years where the stock starts running and you think, what the hell's going on? It's, oh, there's a, you know, presidential election and this guy's pro things and, um, you know, there's just so many layers of bureaucracy where they've got, you know, 227 out of 228 permits <laughs> and, and they always seem to be one permit away. Um, you know, it's it's there's nothing wrong with your body. The location of the town is, is uh, a little bit uh, Kalgoorlie-esque. Um, but, uh, uh, yeah, I mean, I, that's, I, 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 to be honest, I've just not I've not done a lot of work on that recently. Um, there is a very small legacy position in the portfolio that I look at every now and again. And I say, you know what, it's either going to stay irrelevant or it's going to come relevant. And if it becomes relevant, we'll look at it a bit more closely. 
There's a couple more marginal players, all of which actually have a uh, have tenements or projects in Namibia. So I'm not just rattle them off and try and try and get your thoughts. Elevate or EL8 is one of them. You got any mm-hmm. sort of outstanding thoughts on that one? Yeah, well, I mean, look, you look at Namibia and and uh, touch wood, it's um, it's one of the stable uranium producing jurisdictions in the world, uh, and you know probably the only one at the moment in Africa. Um, so there is a, a, a history there. Um, you know, there is uranium. It's, it's, it's low grade, so you think you have to prove size and scale uh, to be able to, uh, you know, to, to stand up there. You know, Elevate's got the ability where they've got a number of areas that they can focus on. Uh, they can continue to prove that, that, uh, that, that there's, you know, all body extensions or they can, you know, and bring some of that resource into uh, into an indicated status potentially, um, but you know they've also got some interesting stuff in Northern Territory as well, which uh, um, you know as that area gets a bit more um, eyeballs on it. I think DevX are the only ones drilling up there at the moment with two rigs. Um, you know, so from that perspective, you've got a little bit of optionality of two reasonably good jurisdictions mm-hmm. um, that will be developed at some stage. But throw in the mix there in Namibia. Deep, deep yellows to Mars, and they they sort of state in their um, ASX announcements that you know they expect FID by mid 2024. Then Bannerman's Itango, also in Namibia, they state they're targeting FID by you know in H1 2024. I feel like a Tango, like if I'd love to see the number of um, updated DFSs this project has had. Um, you know, I'm a, I'm a little bit. Uh, I wonder if it'll it'll ever ever be built, just given the amount of updated DFSs has been. But um. But you know, like, should investors start thinking about these? Will these projects actually actually be developed now, guy? Because you know, uranium's facing structural change. Or do you think they'll just sort of they'll be really, really you know high option value and like they'll in a in a, in a booming uranium market? Yeah, sure, the, the stocks will pump. But the reality is, them becoming mines is a, it's a long way away. Yeah, I mean, look, we we took a substantial position in uh, in Bannerman six years ago when we first started looking at this, I think we, we, we took a chunk of stock out of somebody that was looking to shake loose. And, and we took it back then because we, you know, we liked that sort of retail leverage that it had. And, you know, Brandon's very good at promoting the story and uh, and getting people in on the story. And so, you know, it was, it was a, sort of a chuckle that here we fast forward six years and potentially he's one of a second wave of projects that may come to market. Um, but, you know, like uh, with Bannerman, they were, he was extraordinarily shrewd in, in, uh, in downsizing that project to a Tango 8, uh, just to show that there was a, a, a an ability to um, start that at a smaller scale that didn't have the, 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 the large capex requirement of their original study. Um, and you know, here we are at seventy dollars and and uh, and change, and and utilities starting to really wonder where the rest of the supply is going to come from. Uh, and you know, you're looking at at Namibia saying, you know, there's there's producing assets there. Uh, there's a good trained workforce. There's a, a, a supportive government. It's easy to get it to market. Um, you know. We're sitting there saying uh, it wouldn't surprise me if if, he, if they're in a position. This, I mean, you know, the price continue has to continue to go up, of course. Um, but you know, they they've brought that project to a, to a point where it can start at the right price. So uh, you know, deep yellow as well. Um, John's John, he's last cycle legend, and you know, 
people want to shake his hand in the street and get him to kiss their babies and things. Um, <laughs> um, and, you know, again, he's, he's low-cost drilling in shallow paleo channels in Namibia, low-grade. I think he's got, what, about 100 million pounds of resource or something there now. He's a little bit, little bit behind, potentially, Bannerman on, on engineering studies and things like that. Um, but again, you know, a jurisdiction that's going to allow, um, you know, more uranium. I mean, I guess part of the problem might be that two or three of these guys try to all get up at the same time and they and there's a, a, a fight for resources, um, you know, equipment and people primarily. And to, to Australian soils, Guy, how do you navigate and think about, um, yeah, the ASX players that have Australian projects, noting the, the challenges just from a, you know, regulatory perspective in, in getting these projects up and going? But, I mean, DevEx just raised money. You've got Toro with their WA Um uh, Project Cauldron, uh, also WA Alligator. They got you know stuff in South Australia and Northern Territory. So, like you know, when you look at the landscape of of those companies, how do you make sense of them and 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 any you like for certain reasons above the others? Yeah, look, I mean Northern Territory. Every geologist that's spent any time around uranium always frosts at the mouth and. It's a bit of that sort of, uh, you know, nervous shuffle when they talk about the, the prospectivity of uranium in Northern Territory and it's the Athabasca of Australia and things like that. I mean, it's certainly, as we know it, it has its challenges, uh, especially around community and, uh, and, and Indigenous um, uh, views on, on the matter. But, you know, I think there's, at some stage, there needs to be a consolidation play out there. There needs to be somebody with a, a good-sized checkbook to really start proving out um, that, there is another ranger or Javaluka um, there, and, and there probably is, uh, instead of the sort of game at the moment where everyone thinks they're going to be able to get pick up Javaluka um, once uh, uh, the Mirar people, you know, tell Rio they can't have it anymore or Rio decides that they've done enough and can get rid of it. You know, that's not a play for Northern Territory, but, but there's certainly an upside in somebody putting a drill bit in and, uh, and, and proving up stuff. South Australia is the other obvious one. So, you know, when you look at your question where you say, well, you know, you've got Alligator Energy who's got a project in South Australia and, and uh, an exploration project in, uh, in Northern Territory, uh, what are the two jurisdictions that are going to allow you to do stuff? It's those two. Um, you know, Western Australia, I mean, it, 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 it's mind-boggling that you've got a – Radiation, radioactive, radioactive waste disposal site being built there. <laughs> that you're going to have Iluka throwing in thorium and uranium into a tailings disposal with their monazite separation, and uh, and there's a government policy that's not even legislated that says you can't mine uranium. Uh, you know, it it is a bit silly, but uh, um, you know, trying to get the head of the politicians is going to send you nuts. Uh, you know, same thing with Queensland. I think the problem in Queensland is that. Most of that stuff is owned by, you know, non-Australian entities, uh, with the exception of probably um, Paladin up there. Um, so there's no one putting pressure on the government up there to say, hey, you know, this is a no-brainer. And, you, you know, you look at it from the perspective of how do you pitch it to politicians, uh, jobs and, and, and money to the economy. And when you're turning around to Western Australia and saying there's uranium because eventually we're going to, you know, displace coal, Western Australia goes, who cares, don't do any coal, you know. Potentially, you pitch it to Queensland and say, "There's some uranium deposits here. 
you can export a, 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 a commodity that's going to produce zero carbon electricity and, you know, as coal winds down, if it does, um, you know, there's, a, there's another industry here for you. I, I gather you're a liberal voter, Cobber. My politics is my politics is irrelevant, but what what I dislike is stupidity and political decisions. So let's not even get into the conversation about nuclear power. Stupidity behind that either. Good, perfect. I really appreciate you coming on the show, Guy. I'm sure the money miners will get a bunch of value, and I mean I've learnt heaps on uranium nuclear along the way. So thanks, mate. Oh, and, and no mate, worries. what's what's uranium price going to hit spot price? I know that you said that's the market <laughs> that matters, but how high is it going to go this cycle? <laughs> and he'll requite you next time you come back on too, remember? <laughs> you say 200 or 300? Within, on what time frame? Uh, within the next 12 months. Next 12 months? Yeah, top tick. Let's throw out uh, $175 just to be really controversial on the spot price. I like it. I like it. Mate, geez, you'd be, well, sick of, you'd be sick of Zoom calls after today, Cobby. You've had a couple already, <laughs> mate. There's our, there's our um, title of the YouTube, yeah. <laughs> Guy Keller says uranium's going at 175 <laughs> At $175, I might be doing the next call from the back of my boat called the <laughs> Awesome. Thanks a lot, Guy. Good on you, Guy. Have a good evening, mate. Cheers, Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. Cheers, Cobber. Great. There we go, boys. We've got the uh, the full sort of perspective of stocks, where nuclear is at, how they build a portfolio around this thesis. So 175. Yeah. 175. That's Trav, all that Trav, matters. what do you reckon um, when you ask the sort of in-depth question about the supply? Um, what did you think of his response? Did you find it uh, – did you agree? Did you compelling or change your view a bit? I think um, there's, there's different – time periods to pose the supply question. Uh, yeah, like he, he obviously, the point he honed in on was what happens with the Kazakhs. He sort of, you know, the rest kind of addressed and thought, you know, there's like reason to believe that this, that the other expansions or whatever, you know, will be bloody um, met. But the Kazakh supply was the interesting response I found. I just, um, I don't know. I, I think it's, that's the, that's the question. I don't know. I, I think in the, the short term is where everyone's going to get bloody really ecstatic because it's the short term mm. and it's fun and prices just go vertical, but it's the medium term that's in long term dictated by, by um, the supply dynamics in the market too. So. But they, and it's the people are going to make money off hype, not a, <laughs> oh, yeah. not actually out of uranium production. Most <laughs> of it's just going to be out of hype. They'll make money and lose from, money. And from that's the just, punter side. just what happens with commodities. Yeah, it's um, human behaviour, huh? Uh, it'll be back to crypto next anyway, so who knows. <laughs> right, thanks to all the sponsors. Anytime, anywhere, anything exploration services. Yeah. Not, not any radiation level, as we said before. <laughs> Terra Capital. Uh, Smek, K-Drill, and JP Search. Thanks a lot, guys. Thanks to all the sponsors. Love your work. And Money Miners, Hooteroo. Uh, Hooteroo. Hooteroo. The information contained in this episode of Money of Mine is of general nature only and does not take into account the objectives, financial situation or needs of any particular person. Before making any investment decision, you should consult with your financial advisor and consider how appropriate the advice is to your objectives, financial situation and needs.